Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast, providing quick and innovative ways to make the absolute most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hi, and welcome to Genealogy Gems podcast, episode number 73. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, some of you will be joining me on audio and some of you on video. Yes, we are going to try kind of a simulcast, I guess, if you will, or a video cast of the Genealogy Gems podcast. And actually, I'll be going over some of the news with you on this video portion, uh, where we're talking about some of the things that are going on in the world of genealogy that hopefully will help you out in your research. Uh, there has been a lot of news in the last couple of weeks, and over at the Library of Congress, they've actually added 192,000 pages from historic newspapers to the Chronicling America website, one of my favorite websites. According to their recent press release, the site now provides free and open access to 1,442,000 pages from 171 titles that were published between uh, 1880 and 1922. That's nice. They're a little further back in time in over 15 states and including the District of Columbia. Now, this most recent update expands the coverage for uh, many of the newspaper titles that they already have on their website, and they include four new states that haven't been represented so far, and those are Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Washington. So you can find all of those new newspaper pages, as well as some of the pages from those other states. It's chroniclingamerica.loc.gov. And uh, there are a couple of new things going on over at Ancestry. I've gotten a couple of press releases from them lately, and uh, it seems like they have been very busy. Saw them recently at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City. Uh, first of all, Ancestry.com has announced an expansion to their relationship with the National Archives and Records Administration that enables the company to digitize NARA record collections at a new Ancestry.com facility in Washington, D.C., the press release of this announcement can be read online, and I will have a link for that for the show notes for you. Uh, that is coupled with the announcement that uh, online they are going to launch the first two collections scanned at the new facility. Now, these are coming from Honolulu, Hawaii. There are passenger lists from 1900 to 1953 and death reports of American citizens abroad, 1910 to 1974. The second announcement is that Ancestry.com has added social media functionality to the website. That's uh, Twitter, Facebook, you know what we're talking about, and they are getting on board. Members can now share their historical records that they find on Ancestry via Facebook, Twitter, and email. And your family and friends can just click through to view the record on Ancestry.com when you send it to them. You'll also be able to share records via Twitter and email as well. And once shared, the family and friends can click through, check it out without having to register. So that's really nice. They're getting a chance to look at those records without having to actually be a member. And this should be a really easy way to share some of those new discoveries that you're finding uh, with people that are in your family, as well as fellow researchers, kind of a collaboration tool. 
They have implemented this capability in a limited way uh, on their site to kind of gauge the interest. And right now, you can only share historical records and only from the records page itself. Now, I'm recording this in October of 2009, so perhaps by the time you listen to this podcast, it may be taken further from that, but that's the case right now. And if they find that the response is really positive, then they will likely extend this same capability to more places on the website and to more types of media. Think about photographs, stories, those kinds of things could be really fun to share. So right now, you can try this out by going to a record page on Ancestry.com and clicking on Share This Record. And then you will see a drop-down menu. And from there, you can customize the text of the post or the email that you want to send. Uh, So just give it a try and see what you think. I'd love to hear from you and see how it works for you. Uh, Again, you can always send me an email at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. Or you could leave a recorded message and kind of give us your feedback on this at 925-272-4021. Now, being a Facebook user myself, I can imagine that there'd be tons of records flying around and uh, kind of clogging up the news feed, if you will. And that could get a little bit annoying, but hopefully people will be selective in the way in which they use this ability to share records with Facebook. Um, It's definitely a terrific advertising mechanism for Ancestry, isn't it? I mean, every time we share a record, they're going to get a free ad on Facebook. I mean, (laughs) pretty smart business sense. Um, But actually, it could be pretty much a win-win situation, especially because um, of the number of people who are connecting with their relatives on Facebook. And I know in my case, my cousin Carolyn, she's on Facebook, and we collaborate all the time. I'm out in California, she's in Texas, and to be able to share records like that um, real quickly and easily would be really terrific. So... You know, we'll see how it works. Hopefully, it won't bog down Facebook or Twitter, uh, but actually add a lot of value. Well, they've also been working diligently to improve Member Connect. Um, as uh, David Graham. Now, you'll remember that David Graham was here on the show. He's the Director of Product Management at Ancestry.com, and he was on the Genealogy Gems podcast, and you can also watch the two-part video series that I produced um, with that interview on the Genealogy Gems TV channel on YouTube. And you just go to youtube.com slash user slash genealogy gems and you can watch the two-part series that we did where he's actually showing us on the screen how to interact and use member connect and it's it's a great way to go if you want to get um, introduced to it well they have been working diligently on these improvements and a number of them were things that david had mentioned to us in that interview And uh, a lot of it was based on member feedback, and that includes your feedback because you emailed me and voicemailed me and let me know what you were looking for, and I passed those on to David as well. I know that they are trying to be more responsive to um, users' interests and feedback and comments on their products, so it's nice to see that maybe some of those things are being implemented. Now, here's a few of the highlights they sent me. I want to cover some of these with you. You can have links between your tree and trees that you've connected to. So if you've connected to someone in another person's tree, uh, either through Ancestry Hints or through Member Connect, then they can include a link for you in their tree that goes back to the person in your tree that you've connected to. And uh, explanations for specific activity items. It says here, you can now easily find out why we have notified you about a specific item on your recent Member Connect activity list. 
if you put your mouse over the item, you'll get kind of a question mark icon, and clicking that will explain why the item is on your list, and it will also usually link you to a related record or person in your tree. And they also have something called the ignored indicator. Let me read to you what they told me about it. It says, when you connect with someone in another person's uh, or another member's tree, we highlight which facts in their tree aren't in your tree, and those will be labeled new. And which ones are different than what is in your tree, labeled conflicting. It says, you can ignore any of these facts that you are not interested in looking into further. Previously, we simply removed the new or conflicting label when you ignore a fact, but now include a specialized ignored indicator to help clarify that you have looked at this information already and have ignored it. And I think that was definitely something that people were asking for. And in the future, we can look forward to some uh, additional improvements as well, which will be good. Um, They are currently working on things like the ability to filter down to the activity that you're most interested in. I know this was something that people were asking for as well. For some members, this has been, there may be a long list of items each day in the recent Member Connect activity list, and they're working on expanding the filters that they offer. Uh, It says, we'll also remember your settings so that the items that you filter out stay off of your Member Connect activity list until you choose to include them again. They also have coming up making it easier to see the details for activity notifications. On the recent Member Connect activity list, we sometimes roll up multiple actions into one activity item. For example, they say, if a member you have connected with has uploaded four new photographs about a common ancestor that you share, we'd include one item about that rather than one for each photo. That we're, we're working on a way for members to be able to expand an item like this to learn more about each individual photo before clicking through on the item. So that could be coming in pretty handy. And finally, it looks like that they're working on adding new people to your tree. This is right now, if you find that another member has discovered a relative of one of your ancestors that you weren't aware of before, the option of adding that person to your tree is not as clean and simple as we would like, or as I'm sure some of the users have uh, told them about. It says that they are working on simplifying this flow while maintaining the ability to evaluate the other members' research. So sounds like that they are definitely trying to make some improvements. They're listening to feedback and hopefully are um, making some headway on some of these improvements. Again, if you want to get more uh, familiar with Member Connect, check out the YouTube channel for Genealogy Gems and watch his tour because David really takes us on a personal tour of Member Connect and gives us a chance to kind of see it up and running. And then uh, just play with it yourself and see what you think. Well, that's the news for now, and uh, coming up next, we'll be going to the mailbox. Well, here we are in the mailbox, and I've uh, got a lot of email here, things that have come in um, because I've been off for a couple of weeks, and um, so let's just get right to them. Um, I've got an email here from... Maria Romano, she's a premium member of Genealogy Gems, and she's got a question. Hi, Lisa, I have a question about an ancestor, the oldest one I have knowledge of in my mother's family. Her name was Anne Hickson Carey. She came from Clan Morris County, Carey, Ireland. 
I have not been able to locate her immigration records, but she lived in New Orleans with her son as of the 1880 census, which stated her age as 85. I found her death information. She died on July 20th of 1883 and located her death notice in the local newspaper. It states that she was 95 years old and the death notice had this at the bottom. Montreal, Canada, papers, please copy. Do you think perhaps that she immigrated from Ireland to Montreal and then somehow wound up coming to New Orleans? I can find no husband's name. Perhaps she left relatives or friends in Montreal. Where would you suggest I try looking for immigration records for her? I also located a copy of her death certificate at the Louisiana State Archives this past Saturday. It lists her age at death as 95, cause of death, old age, and said she was a resident of the city of New Orleans for 42 years. Could have been 40 years, hard to read. That puts her arrival in New Orleans between 1841 and 1843, perhaps. Would you trust the death certificate with the correct age as the 1880 census had her age different? Her son was married in New Orleans in April of 1857, and I have a copy of his marriage certificate. Not sure if he immigrated at the same time as his mother. A copy of his death certificate just stated that he was a native of, and I can't even, I'm not even sure I can pronounce this correctly, Cahirsevan, oh, I don't know if that's right, County Kerry, Ireland. <laughs> it's C-A-H-I-R-C-I-V-E-E-N. He'd been married for 40 years. It makes no mention of when he arrived in New Orleans. What should be my next step? And that's from Maria Romano. Well, Maria, uh, when it comes to Irish genealogy, I am a novice. I have a lot of Irish blood in me, and I've been doing some research. But I decided for your question, I really need to go to the source, the expert, the main man. And that is Mike O'Loughlin of the Irish Roots Cafe podcast. Mike is terrific, and, and he and I have been great podcasting buddies. And so I forwarded your email to him and asked him to give us some input, some things to look for, and maybe some little-known resources that you could pursue. So Mr. Mike was awfully nice, and he recorded his answer for you. And here it comes. Hello, Lisa. This is Michael Laughlin of the Irish Roots Cafe podcast. Uh, it's always good to talk to you and... Uh, Congratulations on how well your podcast have been going, and uh, Genealogical Gems has really carved a path in the podcast community. Uh, you know, when you dropped by the uh, cafe the other day, the Irish Roots Cafe, uh, you mentioned that uh, a, a note in the paper on a, an obituary, I guess it was, that uh, said, Montreal, Canada, papers please copy at the end of the uh, article. So, you know what? Uh, that's a real good idea, and you know why? That's because a lot of Irish came into Canada. But don't stop with Montreal records when you take a look, because uh, especially I'll take during the famine period, uh, Gros Seal, the island in the St. Lawrence Seaway there uh, that led to the immigration into Quebec. Well, I tell you, there's a lot of interest in the Irish there, and they've done a lot of research. There's a lot of Irish organizations. Uh, there's government records, and they went into Quebec from there, and uh, then they spread out, and they would end up in places like Montreal. And there's plenty of Irish that landed first in Canada because the uh, uh, at times the uh, passage to Canada was cheaper than to America. Uh, so a lot of people got off in Canada. Some stayed, but a lot came on down into America. And when I was doing our uh, Irish in America podcast series, I was surprised at how many people in the Midwest 
actually had ancestors that had come down through Canada and had settled in the Midwest. So uh, it's no trouble at all for him to head on down to New Orleans, as I'm sure you'd be aware. Hey, one other note, just like your reader's ancestors were from County Cary, so uh, my mother's family, the Donahues, were from County Cary as well. And uh, I've seen Hickson and I've seen Cary, uh, the Cary name, over there quite a bit. So they're good old uh, West Coast names. But you know what? Uh, and just in case she doesn't know or one of her other uh, readers wouldn't know, uh, there was a Mary Agnes Hickson who in 1872 wrote a two-volume set on Cary history and genealogy. Uh, I think it was called Cary Records. And she was also a writer for the Cary Evening Post. So if I was looking for family records, I'd definitely want to check that out. Uh, and, you know, on the web, you can go and you can find things like org, and they've got uh, the crest and some family history of one family of the line. And, uh, you know, you're going to find a lot more. They've got a database on the immigrants that came over uh, around that famine area, too, on, at Grosseal. And there's about 33,000 names uh, uh, that appear on that quarantine station uh, record. So... That's between 1832 and 1937, and, of course, a big spike there in the famine year uh, around 1847 or so. And if you check out uh, Immigrants to Canada on the uh, webpage, the Library and Archives Canada holds a lot of uh, information that include the Irish. It's really a pretty good uh, uh, setup, so I checked that out. And there, there was also an immigrant society in Montreal uh, that would have taken a lot of Irish in from, uh, uh, say, Quebec when they came into Quebec and they helped settle them in Montreal. And there's a sample of that uh, Immigrant Society book, I think, just for the year 1832 up. But that just shows you there's records out there. And if you think your family came from Canada uh, and they're Irish, definitely check it out because uh, there's some pretty good records developing up there. Lisa, thanks for dropping by the cafe the other day, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed uh O'Brien's platter. Uh, they took your tip on that little addition to the platter there, and they're starting to do it. And they may just change the name of that platter to uh, uh, Lisa O'Brien's platter. And that's just another example of how names can get uh, confused in the uh, genealogical research. Well, until we talk again, Lisa, thanks a lot. Thanks one more time, and uh, enjoy your podcast as always. Well, Maria, that was Michael Laughlin of the Irish Roots Cafe. I hope his answer kind of helped you out, gave you some new um, leads that you could pursue. And for those of you with Irish research, uh, he is a great resource. And I'll have a link to his podcast and website as well in the show notes. Um, our next question here comes from Terry Chafin. And she says, I've got a question for you. I have a Matzdorf family that I am unable to find at all in Germany. He was naturalized in Will County, Illinois, first record, the 3rd of December, 1879. And that final document in Cherokee County, Iowa, 7 October, 1884. These documents only mention that he is from Prussia. He was married in the old country to Sophia Grab or Grabe, uh, or it could be Crab, Crabe, Crobe, <laughs> who really knows. He died 13th of January, 1913. Obituary states that he came to the count to the country 37 years before his death, living first in Will County, Illinois. He was a member of the German Lutheran Church. I've been able to find my German ancestors in Reed, Germany, but nothing about the Matzdorfs. Can you offer me some good ideas on how to find his family in Germany? Thanks, Terry Chafin. 
Well, Terry, there are some things that you could definitely pursue. And in fact, I ran into uh, Bearable Johnson recently at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City and shared your um, question with her because she is really an expert in genealogy. And I am happy to bring to you the answer that she um, forwarded to me by email just the other day. She says she just got back from Germany and, as promised, was uh, checking into the question at hand about the Matzdorf family. And Bearable writes, In the 1880 U.S. Census, I did find a John and Catherine. Carl Matzdorf and his wife Sophia do appear in the 1885 and 1895 Iowa State Censuses in 1885 in Elk, Buena Vista County, and in 1895 in Brook, Buena Vista County. And again, Bearable here is talking about those state censuses, the ones that come in between the decennial census that the U.S. federal government would do. The 1885 uh, state census lists Carl Matzdorf, age illegible, and wife Sophie, again, age illegible, with children Sigmund, age 20, Eddie, age 16, and Lena, age 18. Everyone was born in Germany. In 1895, both Carl and Sophia Matzdorf are 65 years old. The 1910 U.S. federal census shows Sig, as he's called, Matzdorf, living in Brooks Township with his large family. His widowed father, Carl, age was left blank, uh, is living with him. And Sig's year of immigration is listed as 1875. So the next step was to check the immigration collection on Ancestry.com for possible arrivals of this family in the U.S. after 1868 and before 1885, probably sometime around 1875. In the New York arrivals, we find the woman, Sophie Matzdorf, age 45, with children Carl, age 9, August, a girl, age 8, Sigmund, age 7, Edward or Edward, age 4, and Marie, age 9 months who arrived on the ship Holsatia from Hamburg and Havre on on 3 December 1874. I did not find an arrival for the father, Carl, although he had probably come over just a few months earlier. At any rate, the Hamburg passenger list gives the last place of residence in Germany, so I found the family in the departure list. They left on 18 November 1874 and Stralsund, is listed as the last place of residence. Bearable goes on to check into the town itself. She says Stralsund is a large city in western Pomerania. Currently, it has six Lutheran parishes. Since we don't have the church records, but we do have some other sources, I would suggest first checking the filmed resources to document the family in Stralsund. One starting point may be the citizenship registers, um, and she recommends a film, which I will have in the show notes for you. It's film number 1676628. Chances are that at least the youngest child was born in Strolsund. So she may need to actually hire someone who can visit the various parishes and check the records. Most parishes in this area still have their own records. It is possible that duplicate registers are available in the Greifswald Church Archive. Since Stralsund is a large city, it is possible that the family actually lived in a smaller village or parish near Stralsund rather than the city proper. Another suggestion would be to check Lutheran church records in Buena Vista County, Iowa, for Carl and Sophia's burial entries and the children's marriages. These records may offer additional clues as to the family's origins. I hope this helps. Please feel free to get in touch if there are any additional questions. Have a great day.
Barable Johnson. Well, Barable really shows us the importance of going through all of the different records and, and kind of going sideways as well as going back and taking a look at those state census records. Those are terrific and worth the time and effort to to go get them. Uh, you can look them up in the um, Family History Library or with the National Archives. And it looks like they gave her a lot of great information to kind of help take it further. And then again, sometimes you have to pull in a specialist or somebody who's in the local area to do some of that research for you. And that's, again, what she's suggesting in terms of the church records. So a lot of different strategies there, but hopefully ones that will help Terry as well as the rest of those of you who are doing German research. Uh, all of these kinds of techniques could be applied to your research as well. So great ideas. Thank you so much to Bearable Johnson. And Danny from Baltimore wrote in to comment on Genealogy Gems podcast episode 69 and the story about a man who had found his family history book digitized on Google Books. He writes, I was listening to your podcast that included the story on Google Books and implied digital rights granting. He said, I've just published a book on Lulu, and the hardest part of publishing for me was getting the copyright statement correct. I wanted the statement that allowed unfettered use of my work by genealogist, kind of paying it forward if you wish, while providing some recourse to me from the likes of Google. This is my hard work. I did not do this for the money. Copyright infringement and plagiarism is always a topic near and dear to everyone, to every genealogist. A discussion of fair use typically results in a heated debate, but to assume that since the library has a copy of a book and that an arrangement has been made between the library, a company like Google, and various literary organizations permitting the digitization of the library's collection, saying that that automatically implies the granting of digital rights to that collection is flabbergasting. So why would I or anybody go through the time and the pain to write their story and publish it just so companies and organizations can digitize it and make it part of their revenue stream? Yes, I know they are supposed to provide me with royalties, but I'm not a member of Google's board of directors, nor do I belong to the Authors Guild or the AAP. The AG, the Authors Guild, which is at authorsguild.org, has an interesting view on the Google digitization process. There's not much time left for authors to opt out. What should I do? Short answer, nothing. Longer answer, opting out of the settlement is for authors who want to preserve their right to sue Google themselves. We don't think there are any such authors. I guess that's according to the Authors Guild. And he writes, now don't get me wrong. I enjoy the access Google Books has provided. Your story has some extremely foreboding implications for future access to private work. I was preparing to provide gratuitous copies to local history societies, their libraries, and the state archives, all with the good intention of helping others. My book is not yet open to the public on Lulu, and I will probably not open it to the general public, nor will I provide copies to libraries. What a loss. And that's from Danny from Baltimore. I will have a link to the article that came from the BBC News that Danny's referring to that I talked about on a previous podcast episode. Um, this is an ongoing question, and it's, it's frustrating because, on the one hand, we all want to support Google Books. We love the idea of getting access to these hard-to-find, out-of-print, out-of-copyright books. That all makes sense. But the fact that um, somehow a deal made between a corporation and some of these guilds somehow creates law that surpasses the copyright law is pretty flabbergasting, as, as Danny says. So it's an interesting story, I think. 
it really is one worth us following because, as I've said before, hopefully all of us are going to be published authors at some point, whether we self-publish or or have our work published, but we're going to want to be able to get our family history out there if we would like to, and not necessarily having large corporations make money off it in the process. So thanks so much, Danny, for writing. Appreciate your comments and your, your insight into it, and we'll keep an eye on that story. And got an email from Tina Kelly. She says, I joined Genealogy Gems premium membership around episode 13. So I was delighted to see that you had made earlier episodes available. Episodes 2 through 7 are actually now available online at my Lulu store. I talked about it and published a little bit of information about that in the most recent e-newsletter, if you're signed up for the Genealogy Gems newsletter. And uh, what we're doing is those when those episodes are archived and they're no longer available on the premium site, they are now available through my Lulu store, which is lulu.com, and, and I'll have a link to my store in the show notes, where you can actually download a lot like going into iTunes. It's $1.99 per episode. You get a PDF of the show notes, any other documents that were included um, or, or given out to the members for that particular episode, and you get the audio episode that you can actually download to your computer or onto your iPod. So that's what she's referring to. And she says, I recently downloaded them all, and as usual, they were full of interesting stuff. And making the show notes available as a PDF is a stroke of genius. Oh, thank you, Tina. I, I thought those were, it was key. You know, you got to have the information written out and the, the great website addresses and all that good stuff. So I'm glad that worked out. She says, I wish all the show notes were available as PDFs. And then I could look stuff up without having to go troll through the website to find the information. Ah good idea. I'll keep that in mind and see what the options are for the uh, current podcast. She says, I hope you'll be making the missing episodes available soon. I can't wait. Well, Tina, actually, I am. I've got <laughs> I've got some folks working on that for me. We're getting the show notes put together. Um, it's a little bit of a tedious process to get them published and get all the Im- images included, uh, download all the files, but we are working on it, and we're going to get those archived premium episodes into the Lulu store. So you can uh, get a hold of those and download them as well. She writes, I was wondering if uh, you're considering more topics for your how-to series. One thing I know I really struggle with, and I'm not sure I've conquered it yet, is storage. Both the organization of paper records, filing, as well as preservation of records and photos. Sometimes I seem to be drowning in paper. I know I'm not alone in this. I know of two separate contacts whose filing systems is piles of paper on her kitchen table. When I started filing my papers, I had to abandon any of the systems that I used to use when I was working and now have something that works for me. And yes, I can find stuff again. Do you plan to cover this topic someday? I know you did on one uh, I know you did one on organization of your PC hard drive. Perhaps this will continue the series. And that's from Tina Kelly. Actually, Tina, it is on my list. I'm working on it. Um, I do have a filing method that I use here in my office for all of my genealogy and seems to work really well. I've been thinking about um, putting together a series. Maybe I'll have to do kind of a video component to it as well to so you can really see what I'm doing here. But um, yes, we'll be talking about paper organization because, wow, organization on all levels is so critical, isn't it? Otherwise, you end up you know, covering the same territory twice or having to redo something because you can't put your hands on it again. I know we've all suffered from that. So thanks. Great idea. I have made a put a little star next to that on my topic list and take and keep your ear out for the family history genealogy made easy podcast because that's where it will be showing up. 
Okay, and I have an email here from Russ Carr. He writes, wow, don't you just love it when you find the elusive lost relative and then the story behind their coming up missing? Oh, good. I love a good lost and found story. Russ writes, when I opened up a Pandora's box on my great times two grandfather now, I told you previously about my great grandfather I could never find the obituary or date of death on that became a success story. Well, I used the same methodology on searching newspaper archives online to find his father's obituary and was successful. Almost. This line of the family came from Hawaii in the mid-1800s. Oh, you might check out those new records that are coming online from Ancestry. They've got some Hawaiian records. Anyway, he says, in the mid-1800s. So finding vital records to confirm parentage is a bear to say the least. The 1910 census shows the whole family, large with a couple of unique names, so easy to tell that it is my line, that my great times two grandfather's name was George F. Rose. However, his obituary, which also stated the whole entire family line in birth order, shows him as Joseph Rose. I figured this was a misprint, so when I went to order his death certificate, I put George F., Joseph Rose to ensure that I got a hit one way or another knowing his uh, date of death for a fact. Well, to my surprise, Alameda County did not have the certificate. He was an Oakland resident, lived and worked in Oakland, and he was buried in Oakland. And a post-it note said Santa Clara County. So I called up Alameda County who confirmed the record existed, but that it was in the custody of Santa Clara County and and that I had to order it from them first thought, what the heck was he was doing down there when he died? Well, another $18 later, I received the death certificate from Santa Clara County and was stoked as I thought I was going to get the names of his parents, exact birth date, and other goodies. Wrong. (laughs) Outside of indicating that he was married, no names, the majority of the details was marked unknown, except for the place of origin, which indicated the confirming Hawaii and that he was to be returned to Oakland for burial. I find out that he died in the Agnew's Insane Asylum in San Jose. The certificate of death said multiple sclerosis and organic brain disease. Now, this was 26th of April, 1920, and the certificate indicated that he was there since about the 28th of July of 1918, so about two years. This also reaffirms why the majority of the family was together in the 1920 census, except for him. So I looked at the 1920 census for Agnews, and there he was, along with the corresponding estimated birth birth year that matched everything else I had already known on him, but it was just that he was listed as Joseph and not George F. I looked online at message boards for Agnews. Wow, what a story. Uh, That's a great idea, Russ, because that's a wonderful place to head to when you get some of those pieces of information and then go out and check and see if somebody else has it. He says, but the one thing I wanted was the potential for records, and it appears that it's just not going to happen. I don't know what the culture was back then, but it almost appears that he was dumped off at the facility and abandoned by his family. If so, why the obituary? And why the name changes. And the only thing I can think of is to somehow locate a birth record for my great-grandfather, Cassidy Rose, from Hawaii in 1892, to confirm what my great-times-two grandfather's name is really supposed to be. I've tried many times in the past, but with no luck. 
This is so sad that his death certificate makes him out like a pauper with no family. This happened once before with a great uncle who went missing off the family tree, and I found him in Michigan, and he was buried in a county farm cemetery, though we have a very lavish private cemetery in Indiana for the whole family. His death certificate was totally full of unknown, and I used my genealogical skills to prove to the state of Michigan who the man really was and all his proper vital information. They were so impressed, and I was so adamant about this record being corrected that they actually ended up amending his death certificate from the 19, from 1936 and sent me a new one and updated their indexes accordingly. Ah, oh, good job, Russ. That's awesome. <laughs> well, back to the search, Russ Carr. Russ, terrific job on getting them to amend the death certificate. I can imagine that that was a, not an easy task. Uh, you know, your story got me thinking about the asylum that he was at, and, and I can imagine back then distances, you know, Santa Clara to uh, Oakland isn't that far today, but, you know, it might have been a little bit more of a trek back in 1920, 1930. So in some ways, I suppose people did kind of get just dropped off and, and left behind. And this reminded me about a blog post that Diane Haddad over at Family Tree Magazine uh, wrote. It was a couple of months ago. And in fact, I kept the the um, information about it because I just thought it was so interesting. And these cases do pop up, it seems like, at least once in every family. Um, Diane, I'll have a link directly to the blog post that she wrote um, so you can take a look at it. But it's about an online exhibit. And the post is called, Online Exhibit Reveals Lives Left Behind. So let me just read a little bit of this for you. Since until the 1960s, being institutionalized for psychiatric reasons was often a life sentence. Willard Asylum in upstate New York, which opened in 1869, housed more than 50,000 patients during its operation, and nearly half of those died there. Well, after Willard Psych Psychiatric Center, as it was later named, closed in 1995, staffers found hundreds of abandoned suitcases and trunks belonging to former residents. A state museum curator arranged to have the trove of trunks and artifacts moved to a warehouse where Darby Penny and Peter Stastny encountered them in 1999. Along with a photographer, they selected a few of the suitcase owners to research, and the results became a major New York State Archives exhibit, and it's available online at suitcaseexhibit.org. Uh, they found all kinds of great stuff in there, uh, photographs, immigration papers, ephemera, all kinds of things. And uh, Diane writes, the profiles are deeply moving. Many of the stories of how the suitcase owners came to, the to be institutionalized are shocking. One patient was committed because her employers described her as odd, tactless, and domineering. The Lives They Left Behind exhibit uh, was on display back in 2008 at the Science Industry and Business Library in New York City. Uh, I'll have a link to the library's website as well. And, of course, you can visit the Suitcase Exhibit website for more details. There's also an accompanying book that goes along with it. It's called The Lives They Left Behind, Suitcases from a, a State Hospital Attic. And uh, that was released back in January. And I will have a, a link where you can access that book also on Amazon.com on my website. This exhibit may be kind of a, a virtual way to get a sense of what was it like back then and what were they going through and how were they treated and what reasons people were institutionalized. 
Uh, it's really amazing. I know my cousin Carolyn and I have both worked on an aunt of ours, uh, my great aunt, her aunt, and her name was Marie. And she ended up very much the same way. It took forever to find where she was buried, where she died. And of course, she was kind of one of those unknown cases. And she had struggled with some mental illness over the years. And Carolyn did an amazing job of getting in touch with the hospital and working with them. And it took a long time. They they were still kind of chanting the, the privacy, you know, uh, chant as far as sharing information. But she did get some really good information and was able to track down some things and like you, amend that death certificate. So I'm guessing that this story probably resonates with several of you out there. And um, I'll have links to those to that great suitcase exhibit and Diane's blog post as well in the show notes. Well, I could go on and on forever with emails because I love hearing from you guys. And, and you know what I think is really great about the fact that you're sharing your stories, you're sharing your research um, challenges, because if I don't have an answer, I'm going to go find an answer from an expert if I can. But more importantly, when we can get it out here on the podcast, I love the fact that so many of you will write and say, oh, that was me. That was my dilemma. And that gave me some ideas. So I hope that you find these um, helpful and interesting. And thanks to all of you who took the time to write. It's always great to hear from you. Well, before we wrap up this episode that really is featuring you again with all of your um, emails and questions and comments and stories, it's been terrific. I wanted to share a couple of you with the rest of you. Um, When I was over at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City, I conducted a couple of different classes, and the one that's always really popular is my Google, a gold mine of genealogy gems. So at the end of the class, I wrangled one of those students to come on up and chat with with you guys here on the show, and her name was Kathy Owens. Here's Kathy. Tell me your name. Kathy Owens. And Kathy, you're in my um, Google class. What did you think? Did you see anything in this class that you had not been familiar with before? Yes, and I've played with iGoogle, so I still learn new gadgets and new fun things to do. Great. And um, have you ever listened to a podcast? Yes, yours all the time. Oh, Here I thought I was going to get somebody to say, what? What's a podcast? <laughs> and what's the, what would be the number one reason? If you've got a whole audience here of people who have maybe not heard a podcast, why, would they, why should they take the time and the trouble to listen? Because it's a great learning tool. You can listen in the car. You can listen while you jog. You can listen while you're cleaning the house. Do you know, I had a woman write me and tell me she had a waterproof iPod and she actually swims and listens to genealogy. Do you remember that? I remember that podcast. All right, young lady. I have a prize for you. This is brand new. I don't know. Did you notice my bling? Oh, cute. My grandmother, I inherited all of her costume jewelry, and Lacey and I were coming home from the Jamboree, and I said, I've got to have something, because these people are so special, and it's not that easy the first time you download the show. You've got to figure it out, and they are absolutely gems, and, I've, and I'm always looking for gems, and I love to talk about the gems for research, and this is my brand new full rhinestone genealogy gem. You are a gem oh, for being on the show. Thank you. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Kathy was a good sport coming on up in front of the whole class and and talking with me um, about the class and the show, and it turned out she was a listener. And in fact, I met a lot of listeners at the Family History Expo in Salt Lake City, and while I was hanging out in the exhibit hall at the Genealogy Gems booth, Roger Grua came by. He has written me in the past, and I know he's been a longtime premium member, and so uh, I whipped out the digital recorder and got a chance to record him and get him on the show. Here's Roger. 
Hey, Roger, how are you doing? Yeah, it's so, and nice to meet you because well, you did. You. I remember your email when you came and you wanted the link. And <laughs> Great. So you sat in on the, the Google One class? Yes. Even though my PowerPoint slides were a little messed up, was everything okay? You know, it was really great. And I have, I have used Google a lot. I've been to a lot of classes on Google, but no one has shown me about Google Alerts and all the things with that. And I'm saying, whoa, that's really cool. I can do some things with that. Can you imagine how much time you could save? Absolutely. That's the thing. Particularly with an unusual surname like Grua. I can maybe find some things there, and so that is really some work I'm going to be doing tonight. Awesome. Now, you told me, and I think, didn't you just become a premium member? Premium member about uh, three or four weeks ago, yes. Okay, I'm, so um, what did you think? Did it, was, were you um, pleased, or did you feel like, oh, this, <laughs> this isn't as good? No. <laughs> I, I have really enjoyed the premium podcast, and as I told you, went back and downloaded the first ones you have now available. There's more depth there. There's more content, and I've really enjoyed listening to them. So I, I listen to you every morning as I walk my three miles every morning. That's why you're in good shape and I'm not, because <laughs> you're out there exercising. Did you watch any of the videos? That I have you not had time to do that yet. Okay. I'm well, now you can because with the Google Class, you're going to watch what we've talked about. Plus, there's a lot on the videos that isn't in the class. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast because I always tell people I know time is precious, so... To fit me in is really nice. <laughs> well, I still work full-time as a dentist, so it's just uh, it's time to get everything done. But thank oh. you so much for your podcast. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. So thanks, Kathy and Roger, for being good sports. Great having you on the show. It was terrific meeting so many of you, and I know lots of you became premium members, and glad to have you on board. I hope you're enjoying the whole video series. The Google Goldmine of Genealogy Gym series is on there. We're doing Google Earth, uh, which is really exciting. There are some really fun things to do there. And we also have videos of the organizational hard drive series that I produced just to follow up to what we did here on the show and had that for premium members to be able to watch as well so they could follow along on their computers. So if you'd like to become a Genealogy Gems premium member, we'd love to have you. Just click on the join link on the home page of our website, genealogygems.tv, and we'd love to see you there. And also, I will be at the next Family History Expo. It's coming up very soon. I can't believe it. I've been looking at my calendar book, and it's less than two weeks, I think. Um, it's coming up in Redding, California. And I love the fact that it's practically in my backyard, uh, a couple of miles nor uh, north of here. But that is coming up, oh my gosh, Friday, October 16th, Saturday, October 17th. On the 16th, on Friday, I'll be teaching Google a gold mine of genealogy gems at 10 a.m., and that's part one, and then part two at 11.30. Um, get there early, because every time, I swear, we've been, ended up with standing room only. And they have to stick with some fire code rules, so um, get there early to get your seat. And then on Saturday, um, I will be teaching Sharing the Joy. That's my class, which really talks about how to communicate what you're finding in genealogy with family members who are not genealogists. You know, the ones who kind of get the glazed over look when you start talking about family history. Well, I've got some great projects that anybody can do that really inspire interest and actually will get your family members asking you about the genealogy and the family history. So that's going to be at one o'clock on Saturday. And yes, Lacey is going to be there, my daughter Lacey. And in fact, I think my youngest daughter Hannah may be stopping by, but Lacey will be hanging out at the exhibit hall uh, at the booth on Saturday and helping us out. So that would be awesome. 
I'm really looking forward to kind of getting the whole family back together again. I've been an empty nester lately. They've all gone off to college, but we're kind of converging because um, actually Lacey's birthday is on the 15th. So we're going to kind of have a family weekend, get together, do the conference, go out to eat and and uh, make it a, truly a family time. So I look forward to seeing all of you there. Be, please be sure and stop by the exhibit hall, say hi, and uh, would love to have you on the show. I'll have my digital recorder. You never know. <laughs> You know, it's great to hear from all of you out there listening, and it's really a treat to get to share your emails on the show. When I got this last email from premium member and longtime listener Pat Dalpayas, who recently bought one of the Genealogy Gems rhinestone pins, I thought it would be fun to invite her to come on the show and share her story for herself. So I picked up the phone and gave her a call. Hi, Pat. How are you? I'm well, Lisa. How are you? <laughs> Good. I, I had so much fun getting your email, and um, you ordered one of the Genealogy Gems pins. And as I was telling you a few minutes ago on the phone, I, when I first kind of put them together and designed them, I knew I would love it. I just didn't know if anybody else would care. But you ordered one. What did you think? I love it. It's the perfect size, and it has just the right amount of sparkle in it. I'm big with the sparkle. And I found that I, I'm a big pin person. Mm-hmm. So I get to wear it on special occasions, which is what I was telling you about. Yeah, and, and that was so much fun because you were telling me how you had some wonderful things come together in your own research, and the pin kind of fit in. I'm just going to let you run with it and tell the story. I uh, took your advice. I can't remember when it was, but a couple, almost two years ago now, I started a blog for my family, my husband's fam- one for my husband's family, and one for my own family to focus on family history as a way of sharing the information with my family that I thought they might find more entertaining than other ways of sharing that information. And uh, I promised myself I would do weekly posts, and some weeks it's a little bit harder than others to get something up there on the blog, and I was struggling, and I to decide what to put on the blog. So I went through some papers and I found a marriage certificate and a baptismal certificate for my husband's grandparents. And I said, well, I'm going to scan these and put these up on the blog. And when I looked at them more closely as studying them to put them up on the blog, I realized that the baptismal certificate had been issued just a few weeks prior to the wedding. And that was what I was going to point out on the blog. And it wasn't a real exciting post, but I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And so I, I set it aside, I scanned the things, I set it aside to do the next day, and I went to bed, and I'm reading my book, and I'm getting ready, just drifting off to sleep when your mind sort of lets go of everything. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that the baptismal certificate, my husband's grandfather's name is Jacob, and everything else it says James. And I couldn't figure out why did this baptismal certificate say Jacob when everything else says James, and I struggled over that, and it came to me in that moment that my mind let go that because the baptismal certificate was issued 25 years after the baptism, somebody had to transcribe it, and what they were probably looking at was his Italian name that he was born with, Giacomo, which can also be translated to Jake or Jay, or Jacob or James. I was like, oh, my gosh. I just did one of those sort of dope slaps to the head and said, I'm so 
happy I finally have a reasonable explanation for why this says Jacob. And so the next day, I had just gotten my genealogy pin. I put my genealogy gems pin on and went off to work. And everybody looks for the pins that I wear and said, Why? You know, oh, you got a new pin? What's, all, what's that all about? So I got to tell the story. So I was very, very happy. I call it my blog serendipity. Absolutely. And isn't it, I, that's what I noticed when I first got the pins and I started wearing it. And a friend of mine said the same thing. It, it was funny, you know. It's sometimes it's very difficult to get people to want to hear our stories if they're not a genealogist themselves. They may exactly. not as well understand or appreciate. But here they were approaching me. Ooh, what's that? Oh, tell me what you do. You know, what's the story? Yes, and wasn't yes. that fun? You got to share your serendipity story. Yes, I did. And and the blog allows me to share things with my husband's family, with my family on their own terms, um, which I find, which I think is half the battle. And uh, and then I get to, and I told everybody at work, I'm going to wear this pen every time I make some sort of genealogical discovery. So you ask me about it when you see me with this pen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. Now, didn't you just, you were just telling me that uh, something else had come up that was just kind of a oh, aha moment. What was that? Yeah, absolutely. And then I said to you earlier, I said, Lisa, you're not going to believe this because it happened again. Another week has gone by or so, and so it's time to put another blog up, and I started thinking, okay, well, maybe if it worked last week, maybe it'll work this week. <laughs> Seriously, what I said to myself. So I went through my stuff, and I pulled out my husband's grandfather's social security application, the SS5 form that I had. And I scanned it, and I was getting ready to blog about it, and noted that a couple things about it that I wanted to share with his family. And as I was looking at it, I realized it had been signed by him in November of 1936. And I thought, wow, that, that's really early in the Social Security history. I wonder, let me just go check this out. So I just did a little bit of research and very quickly on the Social Security website found that in the mid to late part of November of 1936 was the first time the Social Security applications were being accepted. They were pushed out through the employers from the post office, if I understood the, the information correctly. And here was my husband's grandfather among the first people to have applied for a Social Security number, which makes that document even more interesting. Absolutely. I mean, it's neat that you were looking at things that weren't even necessarily going to help you take your research back, but you were looking at every piece of that document. And that even told you a little bit more, that little snippet about where oh. he was in history. Yes, and I, you know, and I tell people that, you know, I, t I teach some genealogy classes sometimes locally, and, you know, and I tell people, you know, no matter what you have, go back and look at it again and again and again. You'll find something different every time. But this time, I think the difference was I was looking at it with different purpose. To put it up on the blog and to share it was a different thing than thinking about research, and I think that's what did it. So two weeks in a row, I, I'm very... <laughs> I said to my husband, when you're hot, you're hot. I, I just <laughs> keep having this good luck this week, and then you'll go through a long drought, but enjoy it while I can. Well, I think you make some of that good luck because here you are, you listen and you hear about doing the idea of a blog, and it is a bit of work, but 
I think one of the reasons why the genealogy gods, you know, kind of lay their favor on you is because really you're, you're as much giving back in a blog as you are doing it for yourself. I mean, don't you find that you, what you're putting out there could help somebody else and you're putting it back out in the world. And I just, I thought it was so fun to hear how your family history blogging kind of merged in yeah. synchronicity with the pins that you get to then Put your little your little alarm light on your your lapel that says "Ask me" because I've got something new today. <laughs> and, and if you could just get a blinking light, I could wear over yeah. the top of my head, and yeah, I'd probably have one of those. But yeah, I I, I I have you to thank because you've given me a lot of good ideas. It makes me think differently about things, and it did. And I sent you this long email, but it all came together, and it was so. I appreciate you taking the time to to read it and and uh, ask about it a little bit more about it because it's really it's really been something special and and those serendipitous kinds of things um happen and you just have to have faith and stick with it and they'll land in your lap absolutely (laughs) but it's hard work too i mean but yeah it, it pays off, and I feel so lucky to be just a little bit a part of other other people's genealogy uh, success moments. That's really exciting for me, too, and I loved hearing about it. I really appreciated you writing, and I know you've been a premium member for a while. Are you enjoying yep. that? Are you watching the videos? I do. Good. Oh, yes, yes. I'm a little behind right now, but... I, you know, those times happen also, and uh, but yes, I'm, I'm, I've got them all loaded up on my iPod, and it's like carrying a secret, secret around with me. Oh, I've got all these podcasts I can listen to on my iPod. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so well, I Pat, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for writing in and sharing with it, and and even better, sharing it with everybody else because I, I think your story reminds us that uh, everything we do, you know, nothing is lost. It, somewhere, somehow, it, it come, comes around and, and can turn into something really neat. And I, I love that you shared the story with us. Thank that, that's, you. Very, that's very true. Well, thank you very much for calling, and, and uh, it's been great talking to you. Oh, you too. Thank you. Don't you just love stories of genealogical serendipity? And how fun to have a little signal to the world sparkling from your lapel that you're celebrating a great genealogy find. Well, if you want to get your own Genealogy Gem rhinestone pin, just head to the website at genealogygems.tv and you'll find it right there at the bottom of the homepage. It's a great conversation starter or maybe just a fun Christmas gift for another genealogist in your life. And a special thanks to Pat for sharing her story. Well, we've come to the end of Genealogy Gems podcast, episode number 73, featuring you. It was so fun to have all your emails and get to talk to you and feature you on the show. We're going to do more of that in the future. Thanks to everybody who wrote in and who was willing to um, be recorded for the show. And if you want to check out something new, I did produce the Genealogy Gems news segment of this episode on video. You can get that through your iTunes feed. And it's something that you could download right onto a video iPod if you have one, or you can watch it straight from your computer, or just go to the show notes. You can go to genealogygems.tv and click on the Genealogy Gems podcast icon there. That will take you to the most recent episode. That's where you'll find the audio podcast and the posting right before this audio podcast 73 is the video version of the Genealogy Gems news. Uh, You can just click on the MP4 file that you find linked there and it should pull right up in your computer's default media player and you can watch me doing the news so again thanks so much for listening friend i'll talk to you soon